Well, what a treat it is for me to uh, get into this study with you. As Pastor Matt said, he's going to be spending some time on the Gospel of John. And what he invited me to do is to uh, give you kind of a survey uh, sermon, if you will, to just kind of go through it and, and understand what's going on in this book in, a, in an overview of the book. And I love the artwork on the worship guide you were handed. Is that not cool that our own great team did this? And you might be wondering, whose hand is that? Well, that's the actual hand of the Apostle John. Uh, <laughs> it's not really. It, it's actually Mike of Nature's Table right back there. I know, I know. Uh, Mike, whose job when he closes nature's table is going to be as a hand model. And you might want to take your worship guide back there and have Mike sign it for you today before you go. But I love this thought of this man, John. Uh, who was he? What, what did God call him to do? Why is this gospel different than the other gospels? What does this have to do with us here today? Turns out it has a lot to do, and I love this thought of John is the revelator. He gave us the revelation of who Jesus is. I'm going to tell you what that revelation is uh, here in just a few minutes. But in preparing for getting a deep dive into the study of the Gospel of John, today I'd love to just trigger some thoughts in you that you might come call back to mind when you get into the study week by week of what this Gospel reveals to us. It will reveal to us first and foremost about who Jesus is and what he did. It will reveal some things about John as the one who was given the privilege of being the revelator of that information. But it's going to teach you about yourself in the process as well. And so I'm not going to spend much time. I'm going to try hard not to. I can't. I'm, one good thing, I'm not restricted by what's on the screens because I can't read them. Not restricted by what's on the clock because I can't see it. But I do have a watch here that I'm going to keep track because there's some, a lot we want to do in a short period of time. Uh, long way to go in a short time to get there eastbound. You know that. Never mind. Um, so here's the thing. You remember last week when Pastor Matt finished up his series on Fully Alive and he used the alphabet? He used part of the alphabet anyway. Well, I saw that he didn't use all of the alphabet. And at first I thought maybe I can just... Um, use the rest of the letters in the alphabet, you know, and it would all tie together. But I see why I didn't use the rest of the letters in the alphabet when you get to the Q and the X and the Z and words. Hard to kind of find a word. It was hard for me to work zebra into this overview of John. Uh, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it by the numbers, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it fairly quickly, but just, some, just a, an overview of, where, of what John revealed, and then we're going to enter into the revelation itself. You'll see what I mean when we get there. So let me just tell you, by the numbers, here's what we learn in the Gospel of John. We learn that there is one revelation. There is just one revelation. Now, all those things at the revelation that were, you know, the signs and seals and winged creatures and all that, Matt's going to unpack all that. He'll explain all of that to you uh, in weeks to come. Uh, there's one revelation. There's two brothers. I want to tell you briefly about them. There's three in the inner circle, the inner ring, if you will, of Jesus. 
There are four Gospels. Why do we need four Gospels? We'll talk about that for a minute. There's five statements of divinity where, where Jesus fully claims to be God, claims to be fully God. There are six identity statements that John makes, meaning if Jesus is fully God, then who am I? What's my identity as a result of that? And then there are seven churches and seals that become part of the revelation itself that we won't get much time in. It'll just to give mention to the fact that they're there. But let me start with the revelation itself because this is pretty cool. When John uh, starts this gospel, uh, I'm gonna, he, he kind of gives us this perspective that he wants us to begin with the end in mind, which is always a good way to start. And, uh, and how he begins it is unique, but how he ends this book is pretty unique in itself. John wanted to reveal this. Here is the revelation. He wanted to reveal that Jesus is the Messiah and that belief in him will produce life in you. And here's how he says this. He closes off the book. In John 21, 25, uh, it says, uh, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Many have referred to John as the gospel of belief. John says it's not enough for you just to know about Jesus. It's not even enough for you to follow Jesus. But really, that you have to believe, believe that he is the Messiah. You can't have him alongside many other gods and say, yeah, I think he's a fine moral teacher. He was a great philosopher. He would seem like a kind man except some sporadic temper outbursts from time to time. And he died a horrible death, and he's one of the great teachers of the world. You, you, know, you can have that view but John would tell you that's not the revelation. That's a miscalculation of what Jesus came to do in the first place. No, he came to show us that we must believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's the way we have life. We have it in his name by taking on the identity of Christ himself. That's the revelation. And then he would go further uh, in, in the book of Revelation itself and give us the outcome of what that looks like to have life in his name. And one of my favorite passages in all the Bible is, is Revelation 4 because it shows us that this is not just life for here and now, but it's life for all eternity that will never end. And here's the life that it is. And he says in Revelation 4, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven... And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, and I'll just pause here and tell you, my favorite words in the Bible are these words that follow. Come up here. Come up here. And I'll show you what must take place after this. I don't know what that means to you, but what that means to me is it's a counter, it's contrary to everything else I feel like that the culture I live in pulls me toward. It's sort of like 
come down here. You know, get down to earth. Get realistic. You know, get real here. No, the words of Jesus, the revelation given to us by the revelator is come up here. Come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. Does it blow your mind to realize that everything that we read in the book of Revelation, and the reason I mention this is you can't understand the gospel of John without knowing there is a revelation yet to come. But that that is going on right now in the rest of that, uh, those verses in Revelation 4 where it describes the jasper and carnelian and a rainbow and all these things going on and loud voices and the peals of thunder. You know, all of that is going on real, ni- real time ri- right now. And if you believe that Jesus is the, Messiah, is the Messiah, do you realize you're there right now? Now, I know a bunch of you just checked out like, this guy's been out in the Northwest a long time. He's kind of gone new age on us here, you know. But this is happening right now because God, who is in control of everything, holds all things together. God is outside of time and space. We're locked into this time. You're locked into this room. You can't leave the room until, no, I'm kidding. You can, of course, but we're locked into this time right now because we are bound by that, but God is not. And so all that is, all that we will read about, all that you can read about in Revelation is going on in real time right now. And when John, the revelator, when he writes these words on the island of Patmos, which is just off the coast of Turkey, modern day Turkey, and again, I'm sure Matt will tell you a lot more about all this, but John is an old man when he's writing these words, an old man. He has, been, he has been the longest living follower of Jesus by the time he writes these words. And he still is listening for, come up here, and I'll show you what takes place, what must take place after this. And so there's one revelation. And there are two brothers, the two brothers, I love this, that... that um, it brings this story from being this surreal thing that's eternal and out in ti- outside of time and has Jasper and Carnelian and, and loud angels singing and all that. Two brothers in this story bring this right back down to our moment here in real life for us because these two brothers, James and John, they are referred to by Jesus as the sons of thunder. Now, John and James, their dad was a commercial fisherman, Zebedee. They were the sons of Zebedee. And James and John both became disciples, followers of Jesus. But uh, Zebedee's their dad. And I don't know if you've ever been around commercial fishermen. But uh, being in Seattle, we're around fish a lot out there. And Commercial fishermen are a different breed of people. I mean, they, they uh, just are different. And, and so these guys would have grown up naturally planning to follow in their father's footsteps and to take on the family business of being commercial fishermen. And so they grow up in this household where this is, is part of the routine. But they also have a really strong mother as well. She was maybe the first helicopter mom long before helicopters were invented. 
But you know, there's a story in Matthew 20 that I love. It's just the, one of the funniest scenes in, to me in the Bible is where James and John's mother come to Jesus and says to him, hey, listen, you know, I know my boys are following you, and I just want to tell you this. When you get to your kingdom, to the place where you're like the head guy, you know, and you're sitting on the throne, here's, here's an idea, a really good idea. Put James on one side and John on the other side. You know, let them be right. You get the picture? Like, mom is, it's like, John's a teenager at this point. Keep that in mind. You know, it's like, mom, you know, get out of the way, you know, but, but so that they come from this kind of stock, you know, which is good and strong. And, and they come into this following of Jesus from this kind of background. And, and so they're called the sons of thunder. Jesus gives them that name. They're known as the sons of Zebedee. Jesus sees them, watches them, and begins to call them sons of thunder. You can imagine what kind of guys they were. I think they might have been a lot like these guys right here that you're going to see in this little clip. We're going to Disney World! Yeah, have you ever had that much enthusiasm about going to Disney World? I just want... I mean, Brady and Edelman are sons of thunder. I don't care who you were for in the Super Bowl. You know, they're sons of thunder. Uh, but that kind of enthusiasm, I think that must have been what Jesus saw in them and just and gave him that name. And again, remember that, Jay, that John was a teenager. James was not much older. But they became very, very close to Jesus. And Jesus saw something in, in them. I love the fact that with that, they, you know, they also, Jesus brought them into an inner circle in his, in his uh, disciples. You know, of the 12 disciples, there was James and John, and then they added, Jesus added to that inner circle, Peter. Now, Peter seems like a real balanced guy, right? Seems like a good guy to balance out the sons of thunder. Clearly not. Jesus was, was bringing these guys in because of their passion, you know, and brought them into the inner circle. But I think he also brought them in maybe because, maybe because they had the most to learn, but they also had the most that they could produce as a result of learning it. And Jesus saw that early on. And so he brought them into this inner circle. Now, there's a lot to learn from the way Jesus managed the, the followers that he had, the way Jesus led the followers that he had. You know, he, of course, was God, and so he would do it perfectly, but you can, you can see it in a number of ways, the way he interacted. Now, we don't know. We know there were 12 disciples. There were lots of people, though, that were followers of Jesus, men and women. It's well documented that were close followers of Jesus. And probably in our day, we would call them all disciples. In that day, they didn't call them all disciples. Uh, and again, I've been out in the Northwest for a long time, so my views on this have gotten a lot more liberal. But, um, 
but he had this circle around him, this inner ring of power around him. One of the things that last summer I had an opportunity to do was read more because for 21 days out of five months I had to be face down, and, uh, but I could read, and so I, read, I got through a lot of books, and one of the, I read two book, two and a half books, uh, I'm halfway through the third book, of General Stanley McChrystal. I've come to really respect this guy and, and appreciate it. He wrote, he's written about power, and he's written about teams, and he's written about leadership. McChrystal was a four-star general, and, and one of the things that I learned from reading from uh, General McChrystal is uh, that there is this phenomenon that goes on in putting people, bringing people around sources of power that you want to identify. He calls, he calls it the inner ring, and where he got this concept was from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, who was a great Christian apologist, C.S. Lewis wrote a sermon about this back in the late 50s, about the inner ring of power, that there is a central source of power in any given social setting. Lewis was a brilliant man, and McChrystal uh, applied his concept brilliantly in the way he commanded in Afghanistan. And what he would recognize is that you needed to make sure that in the central source of power, you had people around that power, but then you realize that to, if, you had, if you wanted too much to be in that inner ring, that you were the wrong person to be in there. If you, though, understood that inner ring, you were likely the right person to be in there. And McChrystal changed the whole way our forces worked in Afghanistan by giving people autonomy where he saw powerful leaders and then the people around them. And he applied Lewis's concept, and, and, and people that were too eager, he held them back. People that were on the fringe and watched and saw where the power was and knew how to get to the right place in that power, he would align them with them. So I read that, and I tried to apply this to what I uh, did this past summer in, in uh, working with various groups in Seattle and, and realizing that uh, with the power that comes from that inner circle, there also is a great uh, liability of, of getting involved. And so what the Gospel of John does for us is it, it gives us this sense of what the situations where Jesus would take these guys into unique situations with him. When Jesus went through the transfiguration, he took Peter, James, and John. When he went to the garden to pray before his crucifixion, he took Peter, James, and John. A number of those kind of situations, he took those guys so that he could teach them something about power and what it really means and how it really can be applied. And then, let me move on. I'm going to come back to those guys in a minute, but let me first go to these four. So there are four Gospels. Why do we need four Gospels? Well, one thing is just that the story of Jesus is way too large to be contained in one, one book, one Gospel. I mean, the entire Bible that we have from the beginning to the end, is really about Jesus. Everything in here is about Jesus. It's why John begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
that because it, it all begins and ends with Jesus. And so, but the four Gospels give us a different perspective. Each one gives us a little different perspective on Jesus himself. And so, uh, you, it's, you know, of these four writers, you might think of them this way, Matthew, who begins his gospel by going back to, he starts it with a genealogy of Abraham. And Matthew then takes you through kind of a biographical understanding of who Jesus was. He's writing primarily to a Hebrew audience, wanting them to know that Jesus really is the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for, praying for, doing everything they have, they have gone, all the rituals that they have gone through and the worship they have gone through has been to actually see this Messiah. And he's here in Jesus. That was Matthew's goal in his biography of, of Jesus. Mark is a much shorter gospel, and it's, it's a character sketch of Jesus. It, it reveals a lot more about what Jesus was thinking when he would do various actions. He assigned thought to the actions that, that Jesus would demonstrate as he went about. It starts with Jesus' adult life. And so Mark is more of a character sketch of Jesus himself. Luke is more a documentary. You have to have an, un, to have an understanding of Luke. You also have to know that Luke also wrote Acts. And Acts is a continuation, if you will, of the gospel of Luke. And so you want to put Luke together with Acts to really understand what he wanted us to know about Jesus and then the outpouring of his spirit. It's, an, it's a documentary piece. Luke begins his gospel all the way back at the beginning with Adam and takes it from that, from that point, the first man takes it forward all the way through to Acts, the forming of the first church, of the church and the distribution of the church throughout all the world. And then you have John. These first three Gospels are called synoptic Gospels. They were written around the same time frame. Many of them have the same stories. Some of them have the same language to describe the stories. And they all have a lot to do with each other. John's different. John's is more of a behind-the-scenes look at Jesus. John moves from concept to concept. It doesn't really matter to John. It's not a linear progression of ideas that John gives us about Jesus. It's a behind-the-scenes. It's more like a home movie that it's, it's assumed somewhat that the people watching this home movie will know the characters and love the characters enough to be able to understand why he's telling you these things that are not sequential, but they're consequential. And so in the course of that, John, I love John because he thinks like I think, or vice versa, I think like he thinks. Not so much in a linear way, not so concrete. I'm so grateful that so many of you are concrete, linear thinkers. Guys like me would be lost in the world without you. But I'm also grateful that, that God and his providence would give us this gospel written in this way. And so just like Luke needs Acts for you to get the whole picture, John needs Revelation for you to get the whole 
picture. And so for John, John circles and circles and circles around a concept. Kind of like, you know, a dog. Do you ever had one of those dogs that circle around? They're going to lay down and they circle around and around and around. And then they get to the spot and they lay down, you know. And you think, well, you were there all the time. Why didn't you just lay down? But they needed to circle and circle and circle for a reason. You know, well, John has a reason every time he circles and circles and circles you're going you're gonna to find yourself saying, why, is, why, did we go, why didn't we just go straight to Jerusalem? The other guys started us in Galilee and took us to Jerusalem. And John takes you to Jerusalem, brings you back to Galilee, takes you over to Samaria, takes you back to Jerusalem. I mean, he, he's not trying to give you this linear thought. He's trying to give you this bigger thought, this bigger th- view of who Jesus is and why he came. And so with those four Gospels, we get this picture, though, of some things that John does that the other guys don't necessarily include, and that's why it's a behind-the-scenes thing. So the, the fifth thing that I wanted you to know about John is that this is the gospel where Jesus' divinity, he's fully God, is made most clear. Not that the other gospels don't include it, they just don't include it with the clarity that John does. It's very clear, and it's found, his divinity is found in these various themes. And just because uh, of time, I'm not going to go through these, because I'm, pretty, I'm really sure that Matt's going to unpack all this for you very well in the, in the weeks to come. The one thing I do want to touch on are the, are the statements, uh, the, the fifth theme, the seven I am statements. It's in the I am. This is where Jesus identifies himself as God. It's in these I am statements that we are, something is revealed to us that has not been revealed in other gospels. I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. These are all statements where Jesus in different ways, different concepts, but in different ways, but very definite ways, are stating unequivocally and without any reservation, he's saying, I am God. And so if you want to dismiss that thought, then you have to dismiss the fact that Jesus himself claimed to be God. And you know the old, uh, the, the thing that C.S. Lewis wrote that you, you don't have the option of saying, you have to take it either Jesus was Lord, he was liar, or he was a lunatic. He was truly who he said he was, or he was lying about it because he makes specific statements, or he was crazy you know, uh, which is how we would assume anyone today who walks up to you in the foyer and says, I'm God, you're going to probably say you're a liar or you're crazy and call security, or, and, which is maybe what you should do. But, but with Jesus, he says it very definitely and very specifically of who he is. So I tell you all that to say it's in his own statement of his divinity that John's understanding of his own identity then becomes so significant, so critical. Do you know that your self-worth is largely determined by what you set up as the standard by which you will measure your life, right? So if you say, well, my life is in my job, you know, I live for my job, well, then as long as you have that job, then you know your identity and you're worth something because of that. 
You know, or you say, well, my, my worth, my identity is in my children. And as long as everything goes well, then your identity's intact. But have you raised kids? I mean, <laughs> some of you are not sure whether that's a joke or, uh, you know, I'm just asking, have you raised kids? You know, uh, but, the other, but whatever we use, but what the gospel of John would tell us, it's in that first it's in that la- in that first thing i told you in the very last chapter that you were made by him for him that's where your identity comes from you were made by him for him and if you assign those two prepositions to anything else you're going to live a discouraged life eventually because you're going to see that everything else will fail you. But ultimately, the only thing we're assured of that will not fail us is Christ himself, because our self-worth is measured by that. Now, again, let me remind you that John is a teenager when he starts following Jesus. He was one of the sons of thunder. By the time he writes his gospel and then the revelation... He's an old man. He has followed Jesus. He's the longest living follower, likely, of Jesus in the flesh. I mean, not just the three years, but the relationship that he had with Jesus beyond that, through the Spirit of God, through the Spirit of Christ. You know, and so by the time he's an old man, he's writing these things down. Because you'll see in Revelation, he's told to write this down, write these down, because these words are faithful and true. But it's John's identity that emerges through his recognition of the divinity of Christ himself. And where along the way this, this fully enveloped him, we're not sure because he waits and writes this later as he's an old man. We're not sure. It was a process, no doubt. It is with all of us. It's a process. But somewhere along the way, he figured it out. He figured out where his identity was, and his identity is found in Christ. Where is your identity found? Just not asking you to answer out loud. Just think for a moment. When someone says, who are you? You know, and what do you do? How do you respond? What's the first thing that comes to your mind in terms of where your identity, where your self-worth comes from? I've been disappointed in a lot of things that I thought were my identity and where I valued myself. But my self-worth comes from how Jesus sees me, not from how you see me or even how my family sees me, or anyone else sees me. My self-worth must come from Christ. Do I live every day in victory and blessing as a result? You better believe I do. Every day for me is a trip on the high road, on the sunny side. I've never had a down day, never had a discouraging thought. Every day is wonderful to me. How about you, brother? Yeah. Of course I have. Of course I just lied to you. I'm, pa- I'm a pastor. I'm right in church, and I lied to you. I, what's wrong with that? Uh, it's really wrong. Because here's the thing: it's a process. It's a process that we're going through. But it depends on where's my worth. How can I hear those words? Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this.
John's a teenager, and he begins to understand where his worth is from. You know, this is one of the hardest things in the world to teach somebody, especially people who have been through trauma. We've all been through some trauma. We're going through trauma in our country today, in the world today. I mean, you can look from Venezuela to our own nation, one of the most polarizing era of certainly my lifetime in this nation today. And, and there's trauma in the midst of that because we're divided and we are divisive. And that's traumatic. And, that's, and in that kind of situation, we begin to wonder, so who do we identify with? Where does our worth come from? I have had the great privilege, you've allowed me to have the privilege over these last nine or ten months to work pretty much specifically and primarily with people who have gone through great trauma. One of the things that this church said years ago is that we will do all we can to fight the systemic evils in the world as much as it's up to us, as much as we're capable of doing. It's why we've tried to address areas like homelessness. It's why we have a, a Life Hope program here. It's why we care for uh, children of single moms who are trying to go through school and get jobs. It's why we do so many of those things. It's why we have a disaster response team that goes to the difficult places of the world. It's why we have access ministries to care for the people that we love so much who are, whose uh, life is tougher than ours. By the way, I'm not an emotional man. Um, I don't cry over things that make me sad. I cry over things that make me happy. My wife, as my, as my uh, judge on that, that things that make me sad, I, I, I'm not proud of this, but don't really stir me deeply because sad things just need somebody to do something about them and that's usually what I try to do. But things that are amazing and wonderful that I have nothing to do with and can't change and don't want to change because they're too wonderful, those are the things that grip me. Things like when we do communion or when we talk about heaven that's what gets me. But anyway, this summer, this past summer especially, when I got to Seattle and then realized I was going to be grounded there for months, I began to get deeply involved in this area of human trafficking. And, and uh, a longtime friend of Northland's and of mine is a guy named Gary Haugen, who is the founder of International Justice Mission, also First Aid Arts, which is a program that began in Seattle, and we use it here at Northland in our correctional facilities and a lot of other places here. Uh, those are both based in Seattle. And so I got involved with those groups and also and began to just spin off. It's, and I was kind of following General McChrystal's power thing and leadership and team building thing. And at this point, have, have gotten involved along with a lot of other people in uh, 18 or 20 different anti-human trafficking initiatives in the Northwest. And it, it's culminated in a number of really wonderful things. 
Um, a lot of the a lot of the reason being just that I was a guy that could show up at meetings because where else was I going to go? And so I would just go to the meetings that these people would have, and I would just try to figure out who's where's the power base here, and how do I get near that but not in that, and just nudge those folks along. And and one of those relationships, again, I'm not no false modesty here, and no and not building myself up either. But one of those relationships has been with uh, Amazon. You might have heard of them. Uh, turns out they will bring anything in the world to your door, and, uh, and you never have to pay for it. Uh, they bring stuff to my door all the time, and I never, I don't know how it gets paid for. But, uh, but Amazon, I met someone who is high up in that, in that organization based in Seattle, and uh, found out she's a Christian, and we began to talk about different things. Amazon does not have a great reputation for philanthropic work, and that was a concern to her, and it, it was a concern to me, and I said, I think I know some people that could benefit from, your, from the influence you have and the networking you do and the fact that you're a global distributed network. Does that sound familiar at all to you? You know, it's what we dreamed of for years here. That's what the church is. It's what Paul planted was a global distributed network. Uh, and so we began talking in August about where do you begin? And I said, how about we start with human trafficking and what we could do in this very community? And it culminated in an event that happened just two weeks ago at Amazon's headquarters uh, where they had uh, some hundreds of their top management folks who gathered for a forum and then they live streamed it out to another uh, uh, couple of hundred distribution centers, uh, mostly in the United States, some in other parts of the world. And we talked, we spent uh, two hours talking about human trafficking. And she allowed me to pick the seven organizations that would share their story about identifying, being aware of, and responding to the systemic evil of human trafficking. Uh, this is not the only systemic evil in the world that needs to be addressed. There are many, including the sanctity of human life. That has to be addressed. But this is one that we know what to do. Seth Godin says, if you see a problem and there is no solution, then it's not really a problem. You can think about that, and it'll dawn on you how right that is. But this is a problem. There is a solution. And so we can do something about that problem. And so two weeks ago, we gathered at Amazon headquarters in seven organizations, all of which happened to share a Christian worldview, because I got to pick who came to, to speak. And they, but that's who cares about this issue. It's because of an identity thing that Christians care about this and should. But one of the things that I wanted just to use as an illustration from that gathering was uh, one of the guys that, I, that has become a friend of mine is a guy named Captain Mike Edwards. He heads the Internet uh, Task Force for Crimes Against Children in Seattle. He's a 39-year veteran of the Seattle Police Department. That's him right there. And he was one of, he was, uh, one of the speakers for this uh, gathering we had. But he introduced me to a friend of his named Bear. And here's a picture of Bear. Oh, I know. Bear is a black lab, 
and just, and Bear would literally lay there all day if that's what you wanted him to do, you know, and he laid there while all the other speakers uh, spoke, and then I had to follow Bear, which was hard to do, uh, but Bear, right beside him, is uh, Bear's, the most beloved person in Bear's life, and that's, that's Officer Ian. Officer Ian is his master, his handler, and Bear has a unique thing. Now, canine units are used for lots of things and apprehension and many other things, but you know what Bear does? Bear can smell the chemical compound on a micro flash drive. Can you see this? This produces a chemical compound that Bear can identify across a room. It's amazing. And so in our, dem in our gathering, uh, Officer Ian led Bear through this series of we would take this one in itself, you know, said put it anywhere in the room you want, and then Bear found it. That's why I have it today. It's, it's a little sticky, but I, I have it today. And, um, but, but the amazing thing about Bear is I was sitting there watching him work and realizing this dog has been involved in, multi, in many, many uh, significant um, criminal prosecutions where this is how many times internet the internet is no longer the primary way that um, that material is passed on. I'm just going to say this carefully. The, the way that, that uh, disturbing things are transferred and, and, and uh, you get the point. I'm, I'm a loss for words here. But uh, this is how this kind of thing gets passed around, you know. And so for them to find it and find the source of it, many times a, an officer, uh, especially if they have vision like I do, will miss that in, in uh, going through. Bear can find that. But as I watched him work that day, I realized that Bear is who he is, not just because he's a beautiful black lab, but he's who he is because of Officer Ian, because of his relationship to Officer Ian, because Officer Ian feeds him multiple times a day. Officer Ian loves him and cares for him and spends all day with him every day. And, and he has no identity. Bear has no identity outside of his relationship to Officer Ian. He is like John saw himself with Jesus. You know that John never mentions his own name in the Gospels. You know the, what he always refers to himself as? The disciple whom Jesus loved. One of those pictures is in John 13, 23, where they're in the upper room and they're gathered around the table and, and uh, Jesus has just told the disciples that one of them is going to betray him. And Jesus, uh, as he says that, one of them, it says, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that'd be John, was reclining next to him. I mean, literally just has his head over on Jesus's shoulder. And then Simon Peter motioned to the disciple and said, ask him which one he means. I think the reason Peter had John ask him is Peter knew that it could be him. And turns out it was him, just not the one that Jesus was referring to in this story. But John always, and, and in John, there's, there's a multiple, uh, six different times where John relates his identity. It's always as the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
And so what does this all mean for us? What are we to do with all this? Well, first and foremost, I think what it means is that we have to realize that there's, there's one more aspect to this, and it is the scene which we'll be called into. It is the scene in Revelation where we see the seven churches and the seven seals. And again, Pastor Matt's going to unpack a lot of that for you when he starts teaching you about John. But I thought it would be good if we could close our time together by just literally entering into that scene together to go into what John saw and be able to have it feel like it's us and that we're a part. We're hearing those words, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come and and take their places here on stage We're going to spend a few minutes just kind of being in this moment, this scene that we're called to, this scene that is real and happening in real time right now in front of us. And if as you prepare yourself to sing these songs together, to engage in this worship together, could I invite you to first of all think about that question I asked you earlier, so who are you? Where do you find your identity? And would it not make a difference in your life if you could see yourself the way John saw himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved? And would it not make a difference to you in how you enter into the scene of worship in heaven if you saw yourself coming in as the one who's loved, the one who's embraced, the one who's acknowledged as this is where you belong. Because let me tell you, brothers and sisters, this is where you belong, is in this picture in heaven together forever for all eternity. And so I'm going to invite you just to take a moment, just 30 seconds or so, to just close your eyes and prepare your heart and just enter into this moment with us. And then hear those words and let Jesus say them to you of, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this.